Welcome, everybody, to Attorneys Are Human 2, Episode 11, The Blue Octave, featuring Melissa Zelnicker Presser. I'm your host, Steve Wallace. We are also joined by our co-host, Selena Music. Let's get right to it. We have a treat today. We have Melissa Presser Esquire, and she has so many great distinctions, and I'm going to do them justice. She is the legal advisor for the Plantation Police Department. She's an attorney for the Broward Chief of Police, and she is the founder of the Blue Octave. So we have a lot of great things to talk about with Melissa today. How are you, Melissa? I'm doing great. How about you? We're awesome. Okay, so let's get started. So you are a legal eagle, and so if you could tell our listeners... What made you become an attorney? So you're probably only the second person that's asked me that question, which is kind of odd, right? The first person that asked me that question was actually a young student who met me at a Coffee for Cops event, and she was interested in why I had done that. And uh, and so she was a little young to give the answer to, but I'm actually a trauma survivor. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse, and, and I was sort of derailed in my story. I wanted to become a writer. I'm a creative. And, and I decided that I was going to take my experience and... And I was going to help other kids who had similar experiences. So I decided to become an attorney after I looked at my options because I really loved speaking. I'm an extrovert and I never got justice. So I found I, I kind of that combination of those three things really drove me to um, want to represent children. And then eventually I ended up uh, representing children in the foster care system. Wow, that, that's a really good reason. See, I don't think my reason for becoming an attorney can match up to that. I was pretty much, I, I grew up in a Jewish family and my parents were like, you could be a doctor or a lawyer. So I went to college and I took uh, chemistry and I did okay in it. Then I took biology. And then when it got to organic chemistry, I knew it wasn't for me. So I had to go to option number two. Well, that's funny because I'm a Jewish lawyer too. And so my three options were also attorney, um, doctor, or accountant. So I think you forgot that third. Did, I don't I know did if you mention that, that one. one. You forgot the accountant option. So I that also like kind of absorbed it because my first option was I wanted to be a social worker in the prison system. And my dad was like, um, no, that's not just not going to happen. So choose one of the other options. <laughs> so it was Fair a combination enough. of both. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, can I ask you, did you choose to represent the police department or is that something that landed on your lap? So that's sort of like the ending of my story. I, I've been practicing almost 20 years and I started out doing dependency work. So representing, I actually wrote my own grant through the Equal Justice Works Foundation that was funded through the Florida Bar, representing wow. deep end children who were both in foster care, but were also criminalized. So my job was, it, it's a long story, rather long story, but really that was when the Supreme Court had come out with a mandate to unify one judge, one child. And most local circuits, refused to do that. So I forced that issue (laughs) with my project. But during the pendency of my project, looking at the numbers and just being in everyday practice, I really fell in love with the practice of criminal law. I I couldn't do it at Legal Aid because Legal Aid's funding prohibits attorneys from practicing in criminal law. So I ended up becoming a public defender and working with indigent defendants. It really wasn't until, and, and I traveled that road for a while, the switch really came from kind of a 
tumultuous time, but I had gotten married and I was having some trouble getting pregnant and I finally got pregnant and I was working with some pretty violent offenders and I had had a couple of run-ins with a couple of the offenders who are mentally ill and one particular episode where my life was at risk and I was carrying twins and I, I think I was about half an inch from that particular defendant attacking me. And I really had to think at that point about my kids versus just myself. And so I started exploring, okay, well, what else can I do within the system, even though my dream was to eventually maybe migrate into death penalty work. But at that point, my life shifted. So I saw the advertisement for the police department. I was like, they will never hire me. I am a career civil rights attorney, defense attorney. You know, I'm, I'm a woman. I've got these three babies. I had a succession of three kids in two years. And I had all the qualifications, but on paper, I just was not the person. And so I applied and I think I was practicing almost 10 years at that time. And I just decided I'm just going to put it all out on the table. I'm just going to, you know, do that during my interview. And so I did because I saw the puzzled look on their face, but I said, I'm just going to be honest. And so I sort of went there with them and I said, you know, you'll never find anybody that will do the work that I will do, will love you like I do, will defend you like I will, you know, and I was able to answer, answer some personal questions for them that they couldn't ask. And I I said, you know, really my my goal in, in life for, you know, in changing people's lives, I, I came to realize was just because someone has a uniform on versus somebody who's behind bars, you know, the human condition is all universal, you know? So when I was able to channel that, I see a lot more of my evolving purpose, if you will, you know, and why I am at the police department. And I've been there almost uh, 10 years and I, I love it. I, I love being a police legal advisor. Wow. It, it makes me proud to be an attorney hearing a story that, that you have, Melissa. It really does, because our practice is not as exciting or sophisticated. <laughs> clients that don't want to pay their bills, so we file right. bankruptcy for them. Or we've got clients that are buying and selling homes or people that are investing in real estate. So that one of the reasons the reason why I liked my practice is because there's no emotion involved. When that's some- the opposite of why I like oh, my no, no, practice. No, no, no. So, so that's like, for me, I got enough drama in my personal life. So there you go. I like to keep my business life as vanilla as possible. But Selena knows sometimes we don't choose the best clients at times. So, <laughs> you know, weaved into our lives too often. Yeah. Okay. There is emotion. We, we're just, I think Stephen and I half the time are really confused about the emotion because you know, there's worse things that can happen. Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you've told us a lot of great things, so I know we, we both have a lot of questions. So here, here's my first question for you. So what was, was there any time during your career where you had a certain client and you, it kind of crossed your path and said, you know what, I'm fighting so hard for this client but I know they're guilty or I know they've done wrong. So that's just something I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about that statement. So I do have a particular client that comes to mind, sort of a fun, not a funny story, but my husband is a private criminal defense attorney. Mm -hmm. And for a while, when I left, I had left the public defender's office, I I went and I left to help him with his private practice for a while. So we have tried cases together and done some things together. Before I went, when I left, when I had left the, to go to the police department, I was at the office of criminal conflict which is the same, same as the public defender's office with co-defendants. But 
but right. I sort of had this one last shot to be a defense attorney and I was still holding on to that. <laughs> and so Shlomi, my husband, he had a capital sexual battery case, which is a, a mandatory life on a sexual battery. And I was like, this is the last time I will get to do something like this. So we decided to try and, you know, the guy kind of, he balked at the deal. The deal was great. He was actually serving time in federal prison on a, on a separate charge. And the deal was a, a concurrent 12-year sentence. And he just didn't want to take it. So I decided to try the case with my husband. And, you know, I went through all the, the things you do in a, in a capital sexual battery case. And up until that point, I, I'm a competitive person, as you can probably tell. I can tell that. <laughs> yes. Right? And so I was like, I had never really had a big loss in court, mostly because I am an excellent negotiator. That was one of my strong skills. And so I didn't really have to go to trial too much because um, I had worked up these cases to such an extent that, you know, the minority of my cases were going to trial, which is really what it's, how it's supposed to be. So, you know, we went through this, it was a terrible case, terrible, with terrible facts. And, you know, at one point during the trial, during the break, he said to me, you know, you know, Ms. Presser, I, I heard you, I heard you were the best. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and he said, well, you know, everybody at the jail is, you know, talking about how great you are, which was sort of, a, you know, funny during the middle of this trial. And, you know, and at that point, my mind was sort of like, I'm not sure if that's a, a good thing. Fan club, I guess. Right, right. The jail is like the high school, right? So I was like, okay. And so we sort of went through this trial and we lost. And I, I left the courtroom and I don't know what came over me, but I just started to weep. I, I mean, I just could not stop crying because we don't have parole in Florida. And I knew he was going to serve a mandatory life sentence, which is day for day. And, and I just couldn't stomach that. Like, this is the rest of someone's life. I think it goes back to my view of humanity, that everybody is redeemable and, you know, humans have value and, and all these core beliefs I have. And my husband, who was like so on the opposite end of the spectrum, thank God I married him because um, he keeps me grounded. But he sort of like grabbed me. I will never forget it. We were in the elevator in the Broward um, County Courthouse on the new side, the criminal side. And, and he looked at me and he said, Melissa, he raped a 12-year-old. He deserves to go to prison for the rest of his life. Meaning we did his best in terms of what we did and the effectiveness. And then he went into, of course, we mounted the best defense. We did what we were called to do. We aggressively represented him. But his, his whole you know, thing to me was of a shock value almost because I, I didn't look at cases like that. I think in some ways you dissociate you know, from that case. So you can be emotionally able to very aggressively defend your clients. And when you lose in court, I'm sure as any trial lawyer will tell you, it's just a blow. And so that, that really grounded me. Yeah, that's tough. So I guess my next question is, could you elaborate a little bit on what a legal advisor and an attorney for the police department and the sheriff's office exactly does on a day-to-day -day basis? Because I think a lot of our listeners aren't aware of that. So I call us an emergency room physician. We are the last bastion of general practitioners. <laughs> you know, in law school, when you go to law school, you get a little bit of everything. And I always say it's more like you, you kind of dabble, but really law school teaches you how to think ultimately. A legal advisor does, does so many different things. I mean, I've practiced in areas that I never thought I'd, I'd use, like words like eminent domain. I was like, oh, I'll file that one away, you know. <laughs> you know, but you're dealing with probate, you're dealing with family law, you're dealing with 
with, you know, general civil practice, you deal with criminal practice, you're dealing with administrative law, you're dealing with appeals, you know, and that's why really the people who become advisors need a very good and diverse background in terms of what they're dealing with. Another area I deal heavily with is public records. That's a whole specialty unto mm-hmm. itself. And and also I deal a lot with the legislative practice because I, I've written bills. I had a bill passed last year. So I do that with the oh. Broward Chiefs Association. So it's a lot of everything. And I think the great thing about being a legal advisor too is you don't have time to, to react. You know, when you get a call from a scene at whatever time it is, you don't have time to be like, well, let me go research that. (laughs) You know, you have to be just like an ER physician and say, I got to figure this out real quick and I got to patch this person up because if not, they might die. And then that's true too of, you know, anything that's going on in the field as it's going on. So if you're not a person that, you know, deals well under pressure, you don't like you to make decisions under stress, then it's definitely not the job for you. But for me, it motivates me. I work my best under pressure. I have some really amazing colleagues, most of whom are former prosecutors. I'm a former defense attorney. So just the opposite, obviously, of what they have. But generally, that's where the pool is taken from, because you make those connections downtown and, you know, with the various people within the system. And then, you are able then to work with those same people, but in a very different capacity. So it's really enhanced my learning and my skills and bringing it and working with other civil attorneys. You know, I didn't know anything about probate. And thankfully, I have a couple of friends uh, that are lawyers that deal in probate who, you know, who help me and then they'll call me and ask me some, you know, police related or, or criminal oh, questions. So follow up question. So you would be called in if like, God forbid, uh, an officer dies in the line of duty, and then you'd have to go through the probate issues. Is that no, uh, we deal with probate actually more to deal with uh, property that we take in. So like, for instance, oh. like property on an unattended death, yeah. who gets the property. I- so our property room runs like, let's say a public storage, you know, but okay. we take in things, as you can imagine, from all kinds of cases, we get claims to those things. And so, you know, I really didn't know a lot about, you know, I was like, well, what, what would I do? Because obviously this person is unmarried or maybe the person has a will or, And, and where would you the know, family what? law aspect come into play? So family law is when we answer domestics, you know, sometimes we answer domestics or we serve, right. So, or restraining orders. I see. Okay. Yeah. So they're all related to calls, you know, or I have a a husband or wife that's trying to get property back and I see there's a pending divorce and -hmm. obviously I cannot give the property back in that situation. So I'll work with the divorce lawyers on getting a court order. So that happens a lot in family law. So one of the things we also talked about, and one of your answers spurred another question for me, we talk a lot about politics and a lot of our other episodes. We'll ask kind of the questions that are on everybody's mind during the current day. So we have a couple for you. Selena's got a couple for you later on in the episode. But my question is, I personally, I'm the government affairs chairperson of a civic organization in Palm Beach County. So I go up to Tallahassee every year and lobby the legislator to pass certain bills. So you mentioned that you had a bill passed this session. Could you, could you tell Last us? Last session. No, Sorry, actually I, I, two sessions ago, maybe. Okay, yeah. two sessions ago. But could you elaborate on that? Because it's something that definitely piqued both my interest and Selena's interest. Yeah. So I serve as a legislative chair also for the Broward Chiefs of Police Association. And one of our projects, or one of my 
what I was really looking at was in a post MSD world was making sure that we changed the law, obviously in certain aspects when it came to uh, post MSD. One of the things that the chiefs really wanted passed was what's called the SWAT medic bill because tactical medical professionals or SWAT medics who serve on SWAT teams in Florida were not able to be armed. And so in big events like the airport shooting in Fort Lauderdale or MSD, as you can imagine, as a medic serving on the- Let me just interject for one second. So for those of our listeners don't know what MSD is. Oh, I'm sorry. It was the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas killing at the high school in Parkland, Broward County. Yes. Yeah. So I was very involved in a lot of the aftermath of that in terms of the, the, the legal things that were going on. And so we were looking at it, looking at our SWAT medics going, well, they have no, as they're tending to a victim, they've got no mechanism to defend themselves, especially when there's an active shooter. You know, if you look at the MSD case, they hadn't found that shooter at that point. So they didn't know, you know, and they were tending to victims as, as local, you know, local people would, would know in South Florida. And so I got together with a couple of the chiefs who had, who had brought the project to me and we decided to write a bill that would allow uh, SWAT medics in certain circumstances, they have to be very enumerated circumstances to carry a firearm. And so we went ahead and wrote the bill. I co-wrote it with a friend of mine who's the assistant city attorney in Coral Springs. And we sort of decided to just run this bill. And we found sponsors for the bill. I worked with, one of the people I worked with was a colleague of mine who I've worked with uh, for a long time down here, which was Representative Gottlieb. Uh, I met him when we were up in Tallahassee. Yeah, Mike is wonderful. He's a career criminal defense attorney. And so we had bipartisan support on both sides because it wasn't, it had nothing to do with guns. It had to do with protection. Sure. Um, and people were really shocked to learn that medics uh, who were serving in this capacity were not allowed to have firearms. And, and of course, that lends itself to liability if they were using and, and immunity and all the things that come along with you know those defined laws. So we decided to do it. And it went through six or seven committees. I brought up several law enforcement uh, personnel with me, captain of the Fort Lauderdale SWAT team, the captain of the BSO SWAT team, and three or four of the medics that were actually at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and who served there and in their official capacity with the Broward Sheriff's Office. And so they came up with me. I think we went up six or seven times and testified at the various committees. You know, and it's funny because I was told, you know, I think every year there's about, and I could be getting the numbers wrong, but approximately 3,000 or so bills that are filed, but only a couple of hundred that actually pass. It's a very low percentage. And so when I was working with, you know, the various people on the bill, they were like, just so you know, this is not going to pass this year. Yeah. And I was like, just so you know, you've never met me before. So yeah, it's, 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 an ama- yeah, it's an amazing accomplishment. And, and I can just tell you because we've been through the process getting the sausage grinded and, you know, it's, it's always a challenge. So that you got to pass the first time you you guys put it forth? Yes. So it passed and all of the people involved, like I said, Democrats and Republicans, we had, um, you know, it was definitely a difficult process, as I'm sure you know, to even get there, you know, and travel, not only the travel, but just some of the issues we had to work around with the bill. And, you know, I just had a a really great crew and a lot of divine intervention. (laughs) And, you know, now we have the tactical medical professionals bill, the TMP bill, which passed, it was modeled after 
Ohio's model. And so we have various, you know, agencies around the state of Florida now that are able to arm their, their swap medics. And, and, you know, I, I know there will be, and once there is, if there already hasn't been a story that comes out about how that person was able to, you know, defend themselves while tending to, you know, tending to a victim in the field. Excellent. Yeah. Selena, what's next? Yeah. Well, I, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. I'll, I mean, you, one I'll, of my, I'll, I'll stand down and let you ask. <laughs> well, one of my questions is being that you are working for the police force is what is your opinion about what is going on right now with, you know, we have people on one end saying defund the police. We have other people such like myself. I, I think there just needs to be a massive reform in the department. I want to know what your opinion is on that. Yeah. um, And I get asked this question a lot, obviously. You know, I think that what a lot of it is, and even as I work with the Broward Chiefs, is really educating people on, you know, like, let's say we you start locally on what are the things that are already in practice locally in your local police department, because I'm sure as you know, there's no national standard in terms of policy. There are model policies and so on and so forth. But one of the things we first did with the Broward Chiefs in our rollout was to educate the public on what was already going on here. For instance, since there was, you know, a lot of people had misinformation about chokeholds. Well, we haven't had chokeholds in Broward County for 10 years, you know, or the eight can't wait. Well, we've been doing eight can't wait. And so I think a lot of people, they look at something and of course we all react because that was a horrific murder. And how could you not react because, you know, you're human and you're watching somebody die. And of course you want reform. I think that as a person who's practiced in the system on both sides, you know, I immediately go to solution. You know, I don't really drive myself with emotion. It's sort of like I tell my police officers, you know, there, I tell them all the time, there is no emotion in the law. None. If you want to get the law changed, then you can walk your butt up to Tallahassee and get it changed, but there is no emotion in the law. So, when I started to look at some of the things that we were going to do, we had put that out there that these are the things we're already doing. So what did we need to do? Well, look at policy. Does our policy include, you know, X, Y, or Z? Does our policy include when an officer sees another officer act in a certain way? Do they have a duty to report? You know, those are the things that are important in looking at policies that govern police departments because we are a paramilitary organization. So we are governed by not only law, but we are governed by rules. So our rules are in the form of general orders and special uh, special operations or special orders, which tell our police officers and give them parameters on how to behave. So I think in looking at that, it's important to look at policy, which everyone did and made the necessary adjustments that needed to be, be done. But a lot of people also don't know that just like lawyers and we have to have CLEs and, you know, or mental health professionals with CEUs, you know, law enforcement officers go through a 40 hour block every year that includes an array of classes um, that come down from CJSTC in terms of what they're mandated to do. We do, we do bias-based policing. We talk about these issues. I, I think what needs to be done is people need to take a step back because I think when you're, you're reacting off of emotion, which I understand because again, I'm someone in the system. So I'm just very concrete thinker. You need to say, okay, well, what's the problem and what's the solution, you know, and let's start implementing those solutions. When I hear the term defund the police, just as a concrete thinker, it doesn't make much sense to me because on the non-mental health calls, if you're going to a domestic violence call in progress, you're not going to deploy a social worker. 
Okay, so are you going to do a homicide call or a fight? You're not deploying a social worker. I think what people are talking about is maybe giving additional funding to the police department to maybe have a behavioral health unit. That is somewhere where police departments are suffering. Because, you know, in most police departments, there are not there are not in-house psychologists and social workers and things like that. One of the um, agencies that has a great program is PBSO. They actually have their own unit, which I went up and um, spoke to. I was at a roundtable discussion there with the attorney general's office, and they've got an amazing unit at PBSO where they have people on staff that, you know, work within the police department. So they've got an amazing program. And I think that's really what needs to happen is to get give police departments more funding to be able to have their own in-house behavioral health units so that, you know, if you are responding to somebody who's got a mental health issue and maybe you don't have all the information, I mean, the person could be violent, couldn't be violent, but you can use that as a resource or you're contracting with a mental health body of some sort that's going to be able to give you that resource. But I'm sure as, you know, everybody knows, you know, mental health dollars have gone way down, you know, for years. It's not been a number one priority. And so it's sort of hard to say, okay, police officer so-and-so, I want you to do all these 172 things and the expectation that's placed on that police officer, but then there's no funding given, you know, for these additional workers. And there's also no defined roles, you know, because on top of everything we do, we also have people who have, you know, who are hostage negotiators, who've gone through crisis response intervention. There are officers that have that additional training. And so I'm also a numbers person. So I think it's important to look through the numbers to see, you know, okay, well, how many uses of force? How many, what were the circumstances? And start breaking down numbers to see where the problem is because it, everything else to me, it just in life, is it, it, it's a lot of rhetoric unless you know, we start looking at stuff and saying, okay, well, here exactly is the problem and, and here is the solution. You know, we have an amazing team at, at my police department, not just because I work there, but I work heavily with them because I'm also involved with risk protection orders, which was another law that passed after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas killings. It's also known as the red flag law to a lot of people where we take guns away from people who have mental health issues where they are looking at, you know, potentially killing themselves or somebody else. And we have a specific RPO team that I put together, I helped put together with my lieutenant for people who are trained to talk to people who are on the verge of committing suicide, who you know, are having homicidal ideation, whatever, whatever it is. But as you can imagine, having an officer playing, you know, a lot of different roles does take them out from other assignments. And so we really need to be looking at some additional funding, whether it's through training, you know, I think training is a big area for funding dollars. And in addition to having behavioral health units either attached or within the police department. Well, uh do you think that maybe education plays a role in this? I mean, from what I know, it, uh, to become an officer, it's a, what is it, a minimum of two years? And, and I say to myself, just because I grew up in New York, so in New York City, you're accustomed to seeing people with mental health. And there, you know, at least back when I was growing up, there's a lot of crime. So, and, and I believe, because I know many officers, they're not getting the psychological help that they need to process everything that they're seeing so I asked myself, should an officer become an officer with just two years of a college degree, or should there be different specializations for officers to join the force? 
think it's an education issue. I was never a person that's like equated education to being a good whatever you are. I think, and that kind of, I guess, lends itself into the the wellness company that I started, I think the gap is there are no mental health slash wellness, whatever services for officers. And the problem with that, as, as you pointed out, is that you are exposed. There's nothing that can prepare you for seeing a dead baby. You know, there's nothing that can prepare you for seeing a dead body. You can have all the education you want. You know, I went to law school for whatever amount of years. And, you know, the first time I saw specific pictures or certain pictures, there was nothing that could have prepared me for seeing a decapitated body. So I think when you have that trauma and not having a companion wellness element within the police department to have ongoing, whether you call it mental health or wellness or whatever it is, you have no debriefing, you're just moving on to the next event, you're not able to process that. And that's that lends itself to the high rate of alcoholism we have, the high rate of divorce, the highest rate of suicide in any profession, and the ongoing problems that or, or maybe, you know, excessive use of force or, or things like that. Because if you you don't get the help that we you also need. Deal with a lot of officers, right? And and the thing of it is, since mental health is so stigmatized, I think both within our profession as well, yeah. and with police officers, you know, they're not going to go and get that outside help on their own unless they're ordered to because they've you know been disciplined. And so, and police departments in general do not have the in-house mechanism. They may have a volunteer chaplain. Some have in-house chaplains, but there's no program. There's no program or ongoing program that they have to break that down and deal with it. I was really praying about coming from a very diverse background and having friends who were very passionate on both sides of, of this. They were calling me to counsel them, which, you know, I guess is sort of odd considering I'm a, I'm a legal advisor and I do represent the chief. But, you know, I have such a dynamic relationship with police officers in general, both within my department and, you know, countywide because of the work that I do, this wasn't really, it had nothing to do with, you know, sharing something with me that was going to get them disciplined. It had to do with the way they felt um, and the complex things that they were going through. And it, it kind of hit me like, well, not only are they dealing with the front lines of COVID and their fellow officers are getting sick. And then we had, you know, an officer death within the first, I think, couple of weeks in Broward, the Broward Sheriff's Office. And that was devastating. But then the murder of George Floyd happened very shortly thereafter. And then they were dealing with the complexities of of that, in addition to a lot of the violent outrage that was going on, you know, and and, and worried about their families and, and so on and so forth. And so I that ultimately is the answer. You know, the answer is to institute something that is a wellness initiative and a continuing initiative and try to get that in these police departments so that they can debrief after traumatic instances. And, and what's really great is this past year, the um, legislature passed the Pure to Pure bill, which puts in a level of confidentiality now between peer-to-peers that are first responders so that they can uh, have this dialogue in a confidential setting, which didn't exist up until this year. Yeah. Can, can I ask you I, something? So you started the Blue Octave. Could you go in a little bit more detail of what exactly that program is? Because it appears to go in line with some of the things you've just told us. 
So the Blue Octave is a wellness initiative for police officers. As far as I know, it's the first of its kind because I did quite a bit of research and it's a two-part module. I have a group of officers that I'm currently testing with to see what's working and what's not working. But essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a mind, body, spirit program. It's a wellness program that addresses in the first module, breaking bad habits and patterns. So we're working on mindset. We're working on routines. We're working on things to establish consistency and, and things like that, working on mood and and then I'm going to introduce a body element. I'm bringing in a former law enforcement officer who switched her career to a meditation and yoga instructor. And so she uh, is going to be doing meditation with them, a very simple meditation with them. And we are going to be talking about uh, yoga and trauma-informed yoga. And then I have a chaplain who I'm working with who's going to be speaking about you know, general spirituality, the spirituality side, feeding the soul. What does that look like, depending on what your belief system is, and, and so on and so forth. And using this modality to get the officer well in a continuing model and a self-sustaining model so that when we move on to module two, for those that want to continue in the program, they are then going to learn how to be a peer and a peer support person in a peer-to-peer model in a safe and comfortable environment with somebody who works in a police department and understands what they're going through. And then my hope is that as we work out that model that we're testing, that we will then, you know, bring it statewide to police police departments, and then, you know, hopefully maybe one day nationwide. Yeah. Why, why do you think there's not programs like that nationwide in existence already? When I worked in, when I lived in New York, I, I worked for a firm that filed the claims for, or VCF claims for victims of 9-11, for those of you who don't know. And, and a lot of the illnesses that would not be covered, better said, was mental health and PTSD. And maybe that's why I ended up working at that firm, but I never understood why the lack of, of help for these, for these officers. And a lot of them, you know, passed away of, of other illnesses. But to me, PTSD and mental health is just as bad as having a, a cancer. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question. A couple of years ago, they passed a bill to cover PTSD and workers' comp. And you would think that that was already covered, but it wasn't. This was a recent legislative bill that passed. Again, I think it goes back to, you know, this this idea that officers are like superhuman, that they're like robots. That and I, and I say this about firefighters, about any of those first responding personnel, like we see them as this is what they do and they're not human. Because I think anytime we look at somebody and say, well, that's their job, right? And they're expected to do that. We really dehumanize them. And it's just like, we just see a uniform and we just say, well, that's just what they do. So I I think it's really a lot of public perception and also a bit of what I talked about before, the stigma of mental health. And I think it's only really recently, really in the last, you know, 20 years or so that these things have become more accepted, the concept of mindfulness, you know, these other alternative mental health concepts, or even, you know, going to a psychologist or going to talk to somebody. And the psychologist was talking about acute post-traumatic stress, which is I had never heard of before, and I'm very familiar with the DSM-5, and they were talking about how, you know, post-traumatic stress in an acute setting is a two to three week event. 
And so you may be exposed to a trauma and then for two to three weeks, you're having all the symptomology, you know, you're irritable and, you know, you're depressed and you're all of these things. And I'm like, man, I've, I've definitely been through that multiple times and just didn't know what it was. You know, I'm like, okay, I, I didn't make the connection, but I think we really need to, the more we start instituting it and making it normalized. And, and I think that's just a problem with Western medicine in general. You know, we have all these ailments and we like to tr- treat them with a pill, but we don't get to the root cause of what's causing it. And so much of it is stress. You're talking about heart disease and, and diabetes or whatever it is, you know, that you're talking about. Everybody just wants to put a Band-Aid on it. You know, but the doctor never says to you, well, tell me a little bit about your background. Like, what do you do for a living? Are, are you a trauma survivor? Are you exposed to trauma? I mean, because these are things that there's a lot of great solutions for, including things like, you know, CBT therapy and some other things. But we just want to treat the, you know, what happens at the end. We don't want to treat the root cause of what's going on. So are officers viewed by departments as, as just do your job? in that mindset or it's just frowned upon for them to get this type of help? I just think it's, it's similar to, like I said, being a lawyer, you know, I, I would never feel comfortable if I went to therapy, I would never feel comfortable telling another lawyer friend I went to therapy. It's just not something that's accepted. I think in general, still in many professions, not just, not just policing. I wish more lawyers, especially opposing counsels would go to therapy dealing with some of them. We have a few that probably need some therapy. (laughs) We like to self-diagnose. We like to diagnose opposing counsels. Yeah. Is is there a way that we can, is there a way as civilians that we can interact more with officers, not in a negative light, but in a positive way to see that human side? I mean, in New York for a while, we had, we had beat cops. I grew up with my neighborhood cop. I knew who he was. you know, it's, it's, it's a different experience. I mean, I'm not going to say things don't happen there, but it is a different experience. You know who your officers are, you go to the precinct and everyone's there. Here, I've gone to a precinct and you press a button and you wait for someone to come outside. Yeah. I mean, to me, everything's about initiative, right? Like if we have all these issues, then somebody's got to break, right? At some point, you know, I can tell you, for instance, in my police department, my chief answers every single one of his emails, you know, himself. And, and I have generally in working with all the chiefs in the county and the sheriff's office, you know, there's never been a time where I've heard from a, a civilian or someone outside policing, hey, I tried to get in touch with, you know, someone from command staff, and they just never responded to me. I mean, I think it's starts with just looking at your local police department, wherever you are and saying, maybe sending an email to the chief and just saying, Hey, you know, I wanted to reach out my hand. I want to meet you. or I want to meet, I'd like to meet the officers that are patrol my zone and just say, thank you. Or a lot of times what we had before COVID, we had coffee with cops. So there's, I would check your, your local police department for, they always have events. They're always having something um, to have that go on. And, and if they don't, then you should call their community policing unit. You should call everybody has one, you should call and say, hey, I'm a resident of so-and-so city and I really appreciate all that you're doing, but I'm hoping we can, you know, engage with you more. Sometimes it's just the dollars. They just don't have, let's say, the dollars to put an event on. But with COVID, you know, you can suggest, hey, I'd love to have, you know, a Zoom meeting. Can we have a community?
community Zoom meeting. I have found that police departments are extremely open um, to ideas in their community because, you know, most departments are very community-based, especially when you're talking about cities because you're patrolling your own city. You're an independent agency like we are in Plantation. So I would definitely encourage you to, to reach out and meet those people. I would also encourage you if you want to check out a really great way to uh, find out more about people or a great initiative that I love. My good friend, Chief Constance Stanley over at Lauder Hill Police Department, they are on the Lauder Hill pay- Facebook page. I think it's every week, maybe they're introducing a new officer, the human side of that officer. And they're saying, oh, like I love dogs or I went to college here and, and I just love it. I'm like, I want them to talk more because I think it's so amazing. And so that's a great initiative that you may want to say, hey, city of so-and-so, like, look what Chief Stanley's doing. And I really like this. And I, you know, that's a great way and a great initiative. And I think there's other agencies that are also, uh, Coconut Creek is another example that's doing, if you look on their page, they have, you know, they've got the pictures of the officer and tell about the officer. And that's a great way to look at somebody and say, you know, I may have a problem with policing, right? But like this person is somebody's mother or sister or mm-hmm. aunt. This person is a person just like me. And so by by telling somebody I want to defund them or that I don't value, value what they do in general, maybe I should start looking at ways that I can get to know, you know, like you said, my local personnel and see ways that I can help uh, create a solution. And, and I think those are some, two, those are two great initiatives that have been started. Absolutely. I think, I think that needs to be put out in the community more so that, you know, it, it's like you said, something's got to give at one point. And I think it takes, you know, two to tango. Yes, it does. It always does. Okay, so now we're going to transition into a couple pop culture slash silly questions. So my first pop culture slash silly question to you, Melissa, is during the pandemic, which show or shows have you been binge watching? Oh my God, I'm the worst person to ask. I'm such a big dork. I don't watch TV. But I was introduced to Netflix for the first time. So we watched, what was that? Uh, Tiger King. So we binge watched Tiger King, even after everybody told me not to. But I found it pretty funny. And I, I really enjoyed it considering the, the seriousness of what I do. So I watched that with my husband. That was good. Okay, follow-up question related to that. Being that you're in law enforcement, do you think that Carol Baskin killed her husband? <laughs> so, you know, if you're asking me just to give like some circumstantial opinion, I mean, I think the evidence, circumstantial evidence is pretty, is pretty heavy on that front. So no, would it surprise me to learn that she did? No, it would not surprise me. <laughs> okay, last follow-up question. Should I feel guilty that I'm rooting for Joe Exotic during the entire uh, series? No, you know, like he's so likable. My husband's like, you're crazy. But I was like, why can't they film him from jail? Like the part two should be like him from jail and like his constant rants. And I was like, that would be a great show. Like I would even listen to the audio if they didn't want to do a TV series. I'm like, I would just listen to it as a podcast, you know? So yes, I'm in favor of a part two, like from live from jail. You know, I think that would be a great, good for entertainment (laughs) for sure. Yes. Oh my God, that's hilarious. (laughs) I want to know who was your celebrity or who is your celebrity crush? 
Oh my God. So I love Maxwell. I love neo soul music. And I almost had my third child at a Maxwell concert because I was like, I was like, hell, I have to go. I cannot, I have to go see Maxwell. Um, And so I told my husband, I'm like, well, you know, if you, if you pass on before, you know, he's definitely going to be up for consideration. So I used to travel around like literally going to Maxwell concerts because his music is incredible and he is just an incredible artist. So that, that is my celebrity crush. Oh, wow. Wow. I did not expect Maxwell. Yes. Okay. We're going to ask one more question each, and then we're going to go to the lightning round. So my question is, and I don't know, are you, are you a fan? Are you a sports fan at all? I grew up a Canes fan because I'm from Miami. Okay. So my question is, do you like basketball? I mean, it's all right. It's not my, like my first cup of tea, but you know, it's all right. Here's a seminal question that we have on the podcast. Who is the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? And why? Oh, Michael Jordan. That's easy. Because, you know, I, I, I look at, I don't, I don't look at it from a sports perspective, but his story is so incredible in the way that he was just not going to give up. And I can relate a lot to that in terms of the fact that he didn't make his JV team. And, you know, he came back to be the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Anybody who's like, I am not going to stop trying is a favorite person of mine. That is fantastic. I'm all for Jordan. So anyone that says Jordan, I'm like, yes. Yeah, I love him. And you know, just growing up, I'm a child of the 80s and he's such an icon. And, you know, I, I just, I don't know. He was just so, his story is so inspiring to me. It really and is. And Space Jam. And yeah, Space I love- Jam. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, my, all my nine-year-old stuff. son and I, we love Space Jam. <laughs> yeah, I like Space Jam too. I'm like, that's, yeah, I like that. And like Mike, mm-hmm. like Mike and all that stuff. So, Yeah. This, this is a very inspirational episode. I feel I feel proud to be an attorney after this episode. <laughs> That's good. I love so, it. So, so now we're going to bring down the octave a little bit. And we're going to go lightning <laughs> round. So I'm, we're, it's just basically a, it's it's a rapid fire this or that. Answer the question without any thought or explanation. First question: Burgers or tacos? Burgers. Coke or Diet Coke? Diet Coke. Mountains or beach? Ooh. Right now, I'm going to say mountains, and I don't know why. Hugging or kissing? Hugging. And last but not least, dog or cat? Dog, all the way. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. Could you tell our listeners how we can find the Blue Octave and how we can find you on social sure, media? Sure, you can... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. You can find me personally, Melissa Zelnick Presser, or on the Blue Octave page. You can just type in the Blue Octave and we will come up. I also have a website that we've been working on at thebluoctave.com. It's pretty new. So check it out and let me know what you think. And we're also on Instagram at the Blue Octave. Excellent. Well, I'm, I know we're, Celine and I are going to friend you on Facebook. Yes, for, I love it. This was great. And we'd love to have you on again. Maybe we can do an episode on dealing with stress and, you know, through wellness and, and alternative mechanisms. We'd love to have you on in the next couple of months. Yeah, check want. out some of my Facebook videos. I do a couple of, you know, live videos and you can see some of those wellness initiatives. And, you know, you should even try something today. I'm telling you, it takes a little bit of a shift, a half, half a millimeter, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, we control our mind. So we are the ones that uh, decide what kind of day we're going to have. Excellent. On that, we will, we will leave you, our listeners. And thank you so much, Melissa, for taking the time out. We yes, really thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Attorneys Are Human 2. Please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast host. 
please also leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next time.